0: We are continuing in our look um, at Grace Dangerous. We talked about it last Sunday and hopefully again, as I said, hopefully that um, the title of that sermon uh, series of the sermon series uh, annoys you. Uh, that's kind of the hope for this and um, and to remind us of the fact that we begin with grace, which is what we will uh, talk about again this morning. And so. Today, uh, as you hopefully have already read, uh, this week at some point we are going to be looking at Matthew chapter 7 verses 21 through 29. I invite you to hear these words. Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, Jesus says, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but only the one who does the will of my Father in heaven. And on that day many will say to me, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name and cast out demons in your name and do many deeds of power in your name? Then I will declare to them, I never knew you. Go away from me, you evil doers. Everyone then who hears these words of mine and acts on them will be like a wise man who built his house on rock. The rain fell, the floods came, and the winds blew and beat on that house, but it did not fall because it had been founded on rock. And everyone who hears these words of mine and does not act on them will be like a foolish man who built his house on sand. The rain fell, and the floods came, and the winds blew and beat against that house, and it fell, and great was its fall. Now when Jesus had finished saying these things, the crowds were astounded at his teaching, for he taught them as one having authority and not as their scribes. Sisters and brothers in Christ, this is the word of the Lord thanks be to God. Let us pray. God, we give you great thanks for these, your words, for the ways in which they continue to speak to us this day. Soften our hearts, open our ears, that we might hear what you would have to say to us today. And I pray that the words of my mouth, the meditation of all of our hearts, will be acceptable in your sight, O Lord, our strength and our Redeemer. Amen and Amen. So yeah, so today is a big day. We get the third grade Bible dedication, um, one of my favorite Sundays of the whole year. Um, and we get to celebrate and be sad uh, about uh, this being Mrs. Crispin's last Sunday as, uh, as, our, uh, as our director of our kind of older elementary aged kids. I was thinking a lot about uh, Amy this past week and just so thankful uh, for the impact that she's had on our covenant children, uh, but also um, on, on my specific children, three of my four children, 75% of them uh, who made it through. Lisa will feel like uh, she got kind of ripped off on this one. and um, uh, But just the impact, you know, and Amy a great, does a great job of teaching with energy, uh, with zest and zeal and creativity. Uh, and one of the things that I am personally appreciative of is that because of her um, uh, we have kind of a common language, uh, us and our children do, you know, we can talk about Adam and Eve, we can talk about Moses and Abraham, we can talk about Jesus, we can talk about sin, which we talk about a lot in my particular household, and, and forgiveness, uh, we can talk about grace and love, all those things, uh, because of the work of Amy, and, and one of the things that's so great about being a children's teacher is that the impact that you have is not just for that specific moment, but rather these are kind of lessons that they learn and will take with them for the rest of their lives. I don't know if you have somebody like that in your own life as you think back, if you were, happen to be raised in a church. Uh, I had someone, uh, her name was Mrs. Nelson. Mrs. Nelson was kind of, uh, she was my children's church teacher in kindergarten and first grade. And uh, she was kind of a classic Church lady, if you will, right? She was really old, which, as I think about it now, means she was probably in her forties, and and um, uh, was always wearing a dress and always had her hair back in a in a super tight bun. Uh, she was not uh, nearly as much fun as Amy Crispin, without question. But I have to say, I learned a lot, you know. And I have a feeling that as soon as she saw me, and I was there most Sunday, she probably kind of let out a bit of a sigh because I was one of those kids that was just kind of out of control a lot. But I bet you she had no idea that the lessons that she would teach me are lessons that will continue and continue to have a great impact on my life, even to this day. She allowed the stories of the Bible to kind of have a life of their own and brought those stories alive. I loved and was passionate about those Bible stories. And I was thinking about that this week as well because of the fact that You know, as we kind of go through the New Testament this year um, and and try to encourage you and challenge you to read through it, I realize that for a lot of us, the older we get in some ways, the Bible can easily become less alive, less um, energy inducing than it was when we were children. I don't know why exactly. Sometimes it's because, you know, the Bible can feel kind of complex. The more you read it, maybe the more questions you have than answers as you felt like you got when you were a child. Or, or maybe it's that you just become so um, uh, busy that we just don't have time to really even look at Scripture very much. Or maybe you've gone through something in your life and, you, and it kind of caused you to kind of question things. And, and so one of the things that I've been wrestling with this particular week is just wondering, how can we make sure that as we go through the Bible this year, that it, that it has life to it. That, it, that it brings us life, that it doesn't become just something that is a drudgery or something that makes us think, oh, no, i got to do the Bible because, you know, Jerry's going to come up, and he's going to ask us, you know, if we've read it, and I'm going to have to feel guilty. I, that's not really why. I'm, I'm fine if you still do it because of that. But that's not really why I want us to do that. So the question is, how can we make sure that the Bible can really be something that breathes life, into us, which is exactly what it is supposed to do. And one of the simplest things that we can do is something that I talked about uh, almost exclusively last Sunday, which is this, which is to make sure that we are always beginning with grace. We are always asking, the very first question should not be, what am I supposed to do? But the very first question is, what has God done? It is a question of grace, right? One of the classic ways that we don't do that is with the Ten Commandments. If I said, what are the Ten Commandments? You typically think, oh, okay, here's what I can do, here's what I shouldn't do, here's what I do, all those sorts of things, right? A lot of times when we think Ten Commandments, we start there. Rather than starting where the actual Ten Commandments start, which is before all of those commands, God says, remember, I am the Lord God who brought you out of Egypt. In other words, he begins by saying, here is what I have done for you. Here is how I came down to you. Here is how I rescued you. Here is how I took those chains off of you. And then as you understand that more and more, then you begin to say, okay, well, wow, if God has done that for me out of this great love, this is an incredible God. Now what can I do to look more like him? What can I do to walk with him. But if you begin with the commands, then you will always be be behind and you will always be struggling to allow scripture to come to life. So let's think about this particular passage today. Now remember, if you've read through this, you already know this, that chapters 5, 6, and 7, which is where our passage is today, are all a part of what's called the Sermon on the Mount. So when you're looking at chapter 7, You need to be thinking about the whole sermon, not just the end. And it's really easy because in this particular Sermon on the Mount, Jesus is trying to, he's already called his disciples, some of his disciples. We talked about that last week. Here he's laying out, what is it this group of disciples? What is a community of disciples? What do they look like? How do they look different than the world around us? And so he begins to say that. Well, what they look like is they're, they're faithful to their spouse. They're, they're humble. They're generous. They're not easily angered. They forgive. All of those things. And usually when we look at the Sermon on the Mount, that's where our eyes go. Okay, well, i got to do all these things. All right, let's do this. This is what it looks like. And we just start kind of diving into here's all the tasks. Here are the commands. Right? Here's what I have to do. And if you, if that's where you are the whole time, then I can promise you it will not be too long until you look at the Bible as just these chains. Oh, my goodness, i got to do all this. Oh, i got to do all that. Oh, I keep falling flat on my face. Oh, I stink. I can't do this. But the Sermon on the Mount doesn't start with those things. It starts with chapter 5. What is chapter 5? Five? 5 is what we oftentimes call the Beatitudes, the blessings. Blessed are the poor in spirit. Blessed are the meek. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness. As Dale Bruner points out, all of those are words of grace. Why? Because the poor in spirit are those who know that they need God and that God will provide for them. The meek are those who realize we are not in control, but God rather is in control. Those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, it means that they know that they don't have this in and of themselves, and so they are desperately in need of God to provide that to them. All of this is a posture of grace, and when you begin with that, when you begin with understanding that our need for God and how God has provided for us, how God loves us, how God fills us up with grace, as we begin to kind of soak in that, then the way we read the rest of the Sermon on the Mount makes more sense. In fact, Dale Bruner says that as you begin to do those things, all those things actually do drive you back to grace. As you are humble, as you are meek, as you are forgiving, as you are getting better at being angry, as you are generous, those things are all rooted in grace. If we start with the commands, then the Bible, rather than freeing us from chains, will simply add more chains to our lives. But when you begin with the grace, when you begin with what God has done, then everything else that we are called to do becomes an act of love rather than a requirement. So in order for us to allow the scripture to give us life, we have to begin with the sense of grace, with what God has done. But then as we continue on, as we look at this passage, one of the other things that we begin to see is that in order for the Bible to have life, in order for it to give life, it has to be lived. Let me say it again. In order for the Bible to give life, it has to be lived out. This is exactly what Jesus is saying in this passage parable that he gives of the rich man or not the rich man though that's coming later uh, the wise man and the foolish man who is the wise man the wise man is the one who hears the words of Jesus and he actually does them so that when the storms come the stone or the house continues to stand because it's been built on the rock now let me give a brief caveat here which is to point out that the storms will come it matters not whether or not you follow Jesus, you will always have storms. Sometimes we have a theology that says, well, if I follow the Lord, then my life should be easy. And that is not the case. I was remembering uh, earlier this week, um, and I didn't look up the name of the doctor. I've forgotten it, and I should have, but a better pastor would have done that. And and so who says, who, the, the doctor from Indiana who, who got Ebola, do you remember this several years ago? He was a missionary doctor. And so someone asked him after he got Ebola, oh, well, you know, do you feel like your faith is what healed you? And he said, well, actually, it's my faith that got me Ebola. Right? Because he went over there and he contracted Ebola because of his love for God. Right? So the reality is that when you follow God, oftentimes the storms, you are inviting storms at times when you begin to follow God. What Jesus says is not, I will calm those particular storms. What Jesus says is, even as that comes, you will stand strong because you are built on the foundation Now, of a rock, now you have the foolish man. Now, the foolish man hears the words of Jesus, but he just decides not to follow them so that when the storms begin to come, all of a sudden, because he's built on sand, the whole house falls. Great is his destruction. I was trying to think about what that actually looks like maybe as a different example. As I was thinking about that, I was, I was remembering, a, uh, what, what, what would it be like if this guy, and I came up with the name Jim earlier, and there was a guy named Jim, so let's, uh, people don't like being as, uh, associated with a fool. So let's say Fred. Is there anybody here named Fred? Good. So we have a Fred. So Fred, right, this is like if Fred. All of a sudden Fred has this book, right? It's a book on how to live a healthy life, and Fred says, oh, I love this book. This is a really good book. And you, you, begin to, you he began to read through it. And, oh, it tells you the things that you should be eating, right? Oh, okay, I should be eating fruits and vegetables. All right, I love fruits and veggies. And then, and then it goes on and says, oh, well, you should also be getting some exercise. Oh, okay, good. Yeah, oh, this is a, what a great book. I love this. And it says you should cut down the sugar and the, and the carbs and, and all those things. Oh, okay, this is what a phenomenal book. And he loves it. In fact, he loves the book so much he reads it five times. He says this is the best book I've ever read. And in fact, he loves the book so much that twice a week, Two times a week, he goes to this small group, right? And, and one time even, it's at 5.30 in the morning. He gets up so early and he goes, but he loves the book so much that he goes, and you know what they talk about? They talk about the book. Oh, what a great book. Isn't that incredible? In fact, get this, he likes the book so much that once a week, it just happens to be on a Sunday morning, once a week, Fred goes and, and, and they sit around in this larger group and they begin to read and talk about, someone stands up and talks about how great the book is. In fact, it's so great, they begin to sing about this book. Fruits and veggies, fruits and veggies, keep walking, keep walking. It's a great song. And you know what? When when he's done, the guy's done talking about this book, he walks out of that place and he says, this is incredible. What a book. And then he drives and on the way home, he stops off at Popeye's. And he gets three pieces of fried chicken because two is just not enough. Let's be honest. He tops that off with the Dr. Pepper. He heads home. He's like, oh my gosh, man, that was so amazing. What a great service, man. Remember when they're talking about how we should go walking? That's such a great, what a great idea. And and, and he says that as he sits down, he starts flipping through the channels. And now he gets up every once in a while. He walks, you know, to the refrigerator. and Then to the pantry, gets a few more snacks, and he comes back down. He says, wow, I love this book. What a great book. This is incredible. But he never actually does anything that the book would suggest that he does guess what happens after about 4 or 5 years of having read this book of thinking this book is the greatest book of all time guess what after 4 or 5 years he's going to look at that book and be like this book is the worst it hasn't done one thing to change me I've been sitting there, and I know this book backwards and forwards, and I have the exact same health. My doctor says your health stinks, just as he's always said. This book has done nothing. Now, do you know what we would call that person? A fool. Because that is exactly what he is. But truth be told, there are probably more here than we would like to admit who do the exact same thing with the Bible. Who know it backwards and forwards. Maybe they even go to a home group. They come here rather faithfully. But they never actually really try to practice the words of Jesus. And after doing that for several years, I want you to know what happens you begin to despise the book and the faith. Because the more that you know and the less that you do, the more that your anger will begin to grow. Some of the angriest people I know are some of the greatest biblical scholars we have. Because the more that you know it, But the less that you practice it, you are destined at some point to begin to say, this Bible is worthless. And I think that a part of the reason why Jesus calls this person a fool, which was harsh language in that time, is because the problem is, not only does the Bible become lifeless for the person who is hearing it but not practicing it, but those who are watching that person, the Bible also becomes lifeless. Because that same kind of person is a person who's saying, hey, I go to worship or hey, I go to the Bible studies or hey, I know all this. But I can promise you that when you are watching that person and that person is angry all the time and that person is not generous and that person seems to never be able to forgive anyone and that person is clearly not humble. Then nobody is going to want to try to be like that person or know that Bible to which this person says he or she knows so Well, it ends up, as someone has said, the person who listens but does not do anything, it becomes destructive. If we want the Bible to be something that is full of life, then we have to begin by being stooped in asking what has the Lord done so that we begin with grace and we have to begin to actually start practicing it. We don't have to be perfect at it. Thank God for that. But we do have to actually begin to try and practice these things that we are reading. Otherwise, we are nothing but a fool. And there's one more thing I want us to see about this particular passage and the way in which it may help us to understand how we can allow Scripture to genuinely come to life. I will admit this is going to sound strange at first, and you may or may not believe me when I say this, and I, I could be wrong. I've been wrong a lot. But I think one of the things that hinders us from actually allowing the Bible to really come to life, not just to know it, but to come to life, is because of the fact that we have far too much access to intelligent, eloquent, powerful, effective, and popular Bible teachers. Now I say that a wee bit tongue and cheek but not too tonguey or cheeky. One of the really disturbing parts about this passage is verses 21 through 23. I don't know if you heard it. Um, Jesus is talking here at the very end of the Sermon on the Mount. And then he concludes by saying, hey, look, you know what? On the day of judgment, judgment, there's going to be a lot of people who come up to me and they say, Lord, Lord. And they will not enter God's kingdom. Now, that kind of should make us a little bit nervous, at least... Most of us, I mean, you know, you wonder, well, what in the world did these people do? Why didn't, why aren't they able to enter into God's kingdom? And so Jesus goes on. Oh, you want to know what they did? And we're expecting, you know, lots of really, really bad things. Well, here's what they did. They prophesied in Jesus's name. They cast out demons in the name of Jesus. They did great, powerful things in the name of Jesus, and Jesus will say, get away from me, you evil doers. He didn't say they didn't do those things. He just said, get away from me. So what is going on? Well, first of all, clearly, it's at least one sign of the fact that Just because you may be doing those things, just because you can gather a crowd, just because you can do things that people seem to be impressed, that look a little bit like Jesus, does not necessarily mean that you are actually following Jesus. I also think that perhaps it serves as a little bit of a warning, especially in a culture like ours that loves celebrity, that loves whomever it is that can draw a large Crowd that we should be hesitant to perhaps put too much stock just in those who have an ability to say just the right kind of religious things to stir up emotions, to gather large crowds, to allow their Twitter feed to trend. Because just because those things are happening does not necessarily mean that they are actually following. God. It could mean that. Doing those things does not mean you are not, but it certainly doesn't mean that you are. Here's what I want us to think about. Remember, this is all as a part of the Sermon on the Mount. Remember what Jesus is talking about. He's saying, look, just because people do things that are really exciting, just because people do things that are really enlightening, just because people do things that are really powerful, that doesn't mean that they're following Jesus. And he says this right after he has already described what it looks like when you follow Jesus. And what does it look like? It looks like you are being faithful to your spouse. It looks like you are being humble. It looks like you are forgiving. It looks like you are not overly angry. It looks like you are incredibly generous and incredibly humble and that you are meek. All of those things. You know what about all those things? Ugh. Those things are really hard. Those things are gritty. Those things, to use the language that we sometimes use here at ZPC, are steady and stable and plodding. They're a really hard thing to do. It's much more enjoyable to be really exciting. It's much more enjoyable to do powerful things for Jesus. It's much more enjoyable to have a lot of people see you. It is a lot harder to do all of these things. But what Jesus is saying is that if you do all of these things, but you are not humble, you are not meek, you are not easily forgiving, you get angry too easily, then all those things aren't worth diddly squat. They matter little, if anything. If you aren't actually working, you don't have to be perfect, but if you are not working on all of those things, these are the things that nobody sees when the crowds have gone away. Here's my concern for all of the incredibly great, eloquent wise teachers of the Bible that we have. There's nothing wrong with those people. But here is what I would suggest, that if your favorite teacher of the Bible is someone like Max Lucado or Tim Keller or Beth Moore or Barbara Brown Taylor or Scott Shelton or Glenn McDonald or even Jerry Deck, if it even happens to be any of those people, then I think we have a problem Because the odds are really good, even for people like Scott or me, that you have no idea how easily we forgive others. You have no idea how generous we are or are not. You have no idea how humble that teacher is to which you download his or her podcast every single week. You don't know how generous, you don't know how meek any of them are. See, we can get distracted by loving the tickling of our ears and thinking, oh, wow, I love the way this person says this. I listen to all these things, and it's like the Bible is opened up in a new and fresh way, but I am here to tell you that if that is the best biblical teaching we have, the Bible will never be as alive to you as it will be if you are paying attention to to the way the people around you are actually living. Because the problem is, the way that you actually learn about the Bible, the way that the Bible really becomes alive, is not simply by hearing it, it is by experiencing it in the lives of those around you. Hear me, I have heard some incredibly eloquent sermons and when I hear them my mind is enraptured I'm like oh it's amazing my heart just begins to soar my tear my eyes begin to well up with tears and I think whoa that was incredible I have been able I've had the privilege to study under some of the great biblical minds and I tell you what after some of their lectures people applauded we don't applaud easy it was a Presbyterian seminary and they applauded because it was so good But none of them, none of them have taught me the Bible or allowed me to experience the Bible like like James and Carolyn Hawkins. Have you downloaded their podcast lately? Probably not because I don't have one. They're the ones who taught me what it looks like to actually welcome in the stranger by the way that they did so every day that I lived with them. Those teachers, they're amazing, but they did not teach me the Bible anywhere like like David Tilly, who showed me what it meant to welcome the orphan when he welcomed me as a college student into his life. None of them at all taught me the Bible like my mother who taught me what it meant to actually pray because I would see her every day pray and I would see that the impact that it had on her life and on mine. None of them have taught me what it looks like to actually quiet the voices around me and to follow Jesus into quiet places in order to commune with God like Lisa Prince has done. None of them have taught me like Marvin Fields, uh, or like many of you, quite honestly, who I can't name or you would be angry at me, who have shown me what it means to be generous and to not serve both God and money. None of them have been like Joel Adams, who has taught me what it means to sell what he had in order to live by faith and to go and to actually follow Jesus. And none of them, I can promise you this, none of them showed me what unconditional love and forgiveness looks like, like I have experienced through Megan and Shaughnessy and Adelie and Winnie and Liesl Deck. Nobody can teach you the Bible like those with whom you interact each And every day. And if you are spending more time listening to somebody's sermon or someone's Bible study than you are by actively trying to find people who are living out the Bible, then let me encourage you, hit pause, hit stop, stop subscribing, and find somebody under whose apprenticeship you can be and listen and watch them as they bring the Bible alive. Hear me. There's nothing wrong with hearing a sermon. I wouldn't preach if I thought that it was a bad thing to do. But it is not enough. And if we genuinely want the Bible to be alive in our lives, it will happen as we experience those around us who are humble and generous and meek and forgiving and are not easily angered. So here's the cool thing. Which is what that means is that not only do we get to then experience the Bible come alive in our lives, it also means that every single one of us, whether you are in third grade or whether you haven't seen third grade in 80 years, all of us have an opportunity to teach the Bible to someone else. All of us have the opportunity to be some of the greatest Bible teachers that this world has known. Not by drawing in thousands of crowd, people, not by knowing Greek and Hebrew, not by having people download everything that you're doing, not by any of those things, but by simply each and every day following Jesus on the road to humility, and the road to generosity, and the road to love. When no one else is looking, know this, someone is always looking. And if we want the Bible to continue to come alive as we move from third grade and beyond, then we must be a people who decide that we live and look for grace in all the pages people who are continually practicing what it is that we are reading. People then who are drawn to others who are living this faith out. Allowing the Bible to come alive for us but also for all those with whom we interact each and every day. For Christ's glory and for Christ's glory alone. Hallelujah. Amen? Amen. Let's pray. God, we thank you for this opportunity that we have to learn more about what it is that you have called us to do. To learn, to remember what it is that you have already done for us. We do give you praise, Lord for your scripture, for the ways in which it breathes life into us. We thank you for children's Sunday school teachers or children's church teachers who teach our covenant children and help them to begin to experience the life-giving way of the gospel. May we follow you. It's in your name we pray. Amen and amen.